The one true God, the God of the Bible, is a God who has spoken to man. God is not to be known in some mystical way. He's not to be known by somehow feeling Him. Neither do we come to know Him through human reason or through human philosophy. Rather, we come to know God through His self-revelation. Repeatedly in the Bible, we see that God has spoken to man. If you go all the way back to the the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27 we read, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them. And then what is recorded are words that God spoke to the first man and woman whom He created. God created them, He blessed them, He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. God didn't leave it to man to figure these things out. No, when God created man as male and female in His image, God immediately spoke to them. In Genesis chapter 12, we read of the beginning of the relationship between God and Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants. What do we read at the beginning there? It says in Genesis 12:1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what did God do to initiate a relationship with Abraham? God spoke to Abraham. In Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites have been in bondage in Egypt. God had made great, great and precious promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that concerned their descendants. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God continued to speak to Moses, calling Moses to go and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and to bring them to Mount Sinai where God would meet with them. So God initiated the relationship with Moses and through Moses with the Israelite nation that he was redeeming, God initiated that by speaking. He spoke to Moses. Exodus chapter 20, God has brought Israel out of Egypt with His mighty right hand. 
He has, he has sent plagues against Egypt. Uh, he has opened the Red Sea. He's provided for His people miraculously in the wilderness. He's brought them to Himself at Mount Sinai. Where He will establish His covenant with them. And what do we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he proceeds to give his covenant. God was initiating a relationship with Israel. What did he do? He spoke to them. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, tells us what happened as God had chosen Ezekiel. To be God's mouthpiece. God had chosen Ezekiel to be the Lord's prophet. God was going to speak through Ezekiel uh, to the people of Israel. And God prefaced Ezekiel's calling by giving Ezekiel a vision of the glory of God. He, in a sense, was able to see into heaven God's dwelling place. And he saw angelic beings who are around the throne of God. And there's the wheels within the wheels and so forth. It's giving us an incredible picture of the glory of God in heaven. And then we read, And God spoke... I'm sorry. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when Ezekiel saw it, I'm sorry, and when I saw it, Ezekiel says this, When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. God again and again in the Old Testament spoke to His people through the prophet. And the prophet was to say, Thus says the Lord. And then you come to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 14 that Jesus is the Word. Describes this title, the Word, to Jesus. And says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is the Word. And the Father sent the Word, sent Christ, who is very God of very God, who is of one, one essence with the Father. The Father sent His Son 
in order to make the Father known. So that if you saw the Son, it could be said that you had seen the Father because they are of one essence. And the Father sent the Son to explain the Father to us, to show the Father to us. Two distinct persons uh, in the, the, the Godhead, but Jesus Christ is the Word. He's the Word from the Father, who reveals the Father to us. As the author of Hebrews says, in the past God spoke in many ways, but now... At the end of the ages, God has spoken to us definitively in His Son. And so as the New Testament was completed, which is the revelation of Christ, we have the completed written Word of God. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of this book, the Bible is the very Word of God. I, I just gave you a few passages. But you read through the Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, and again and again, it's God revealing Himself. God speaking to His people. The foundation of Christianity is God's revelation. There's only one way to God, and that is through God's Revelation. We come this morning to a key passage on divine revelation. And it is a very important passage for us to understand. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read that to us now, so please stand if you're able in honor of the Word of God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Paul has written this epistle. And in this epistle, he has written that the heart of the message that he proclaimed to the Corinthians was Christ crucified. Though people who are perishing view this message as foolishness, Paul refused to use words of human wisdom in preaching the divine message of Christ crucified. The purpose in this was that the Corinthians' faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. To those who are called by God's grace, the message of Christ is recognized as the power and the wisdom of God. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul wanted to make sure that we know he doesn't avoid all wisdom. He, he does impart the wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
And this wisdom of God is not humanly discovered, but it is divinely revealed through the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, Paul quoted from Isaiah, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And then the apostle said, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And this is the key idea in the section that we are studying last week and this week. Those words, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. God has revealed to us believers what God has prepared for those who love Him. He has revealed to us believers His great salvation and the blessings that He gives in salvation. And He has revealed this through His Spirit. That's what we have seen earlier in this epistle. And now in our text, the apostle amplifies upon this. In our text, we're going to see the process of divine revelation. And second, the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. First of all, the process of divine revelation. And secondly, the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. First of all, the process of divine revelation. Look at verse 12 in our text. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The New Testament teaches that every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit when they first believe in Christ. And so in verse 12, Paul is talking about us as believers in Christ. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, a Spirit who promotes the world's wisdom and the world's values. Rather, we have received the Spirit who is from God. And Paul told us about the Spirit of God back in the second half of verse 10. And in verse 11, he said in the second half of verse 10, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit whom we have received. The Spirit who is from God. We see here in our text that God has given us His Spirit that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What are these things? They are the things that were spoken of in verses 9 and 10. If you look back at verse 9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So these are the things that in verse 12, we read, have been freely given us by God, uh, things that the Spirit has been given to us that we might understand. These are the things that God has prepared since eternity past for those who love Him. Uh, These are the things that have been revealed to us through the Spirit. Uh, the, The things of salvation. Verse 12 teaches us that these things have been freely given us by God. That the blessings of salvation are a free gift of God. Not meaning that they are of little value, just the opposite. 
meaning that they are rather that they are given by divine grace. They're the most valuable gifts you could ever receive. And they are freely given by God. Meaning that they're given by His grace. We, we, we do not merit these blessings. We do not earn salvation. We do not earn the blessings of salvation. Rather, these blessings are freely given by God. Given to us by His grace. Now these things that God has freely given us start with the greatest gift of all. The gift of God's Son. When the Father gave up the Son for us at the cross. When God the Father gave up His Son as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. That's the greatest gift that's been given to us. The Father gave His Son for us. He gave His Son up in death. That through the Son's death we might live. That through the Son's death we might be saved. These things that God has freely given us also include the gift of regeneration. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But that's how we came into this world. That's how we lived our life, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. But God, in His grace, He removed our heart of stone. And He replaced that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We were born again by the working of the Holy Spirit. And when we were born again by the Holy Spirit, we received God's nature. These things that God has freely given to us also include the forgiveness of all of our sins. Our sins, which were many, were transgressions of God's holy law. Our sins made us deserving of God's eternal judgment. And that is where we were headed before we were saved. We were headed towards eternal destruction. We were headed towards eternal judgment. We were as helpless as a criminal who has been found guilty in a court of law and justly sentenced to the death penalty, who has no grounds for appeal and no right to appeal and is headed to his place of execution. We were just as helpless in God's court of law. But God... In His grace, when we believed upon His Son, He forgave us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, on the basis of Christ's atonement there at the cross for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and so when we believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God forgave us. He, he canceled the debt that was created by our sin. He removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He hurled our sins into the depths of the sea. He fulfilled the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 when He said, I will remember your sins no more. He canceled our sins. These things that God has freely given us also include the blessing of justification by grace. When we believed in Christ, God as the divine judge declared us righteous in His sight as a gift of grace because Christ lived and died in our place. We were guilty. We were not righteous. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. 
But God, in His great grace and mercy, when we believed upon His Son, God declared us righteous. He, as the judge, gave us a perfect right standing with Him. The the opposite of condemnation. Declaring us righteous, pardoned, put into right standing with God, given a righteousness that could not be improved upon, so that we were no longer guilty, but righteous. These gifts that God has freely given to us includes also the gift of eternal life. Before we were saved, we were alienated from God by our sin. Uh, We were hostile towards Him, and we were under His condemnation. But when God saved us in His grace, He brought us into relationship with Himself. As Jesus said, that eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. Jesus promised eternal life to the one who believes in Him. When we believed upon the Son, God gave us the free gift of eternal life, bringing us into relationship with God, into a permanent relationship with God that's not based on our works, but based on the grace of God. These things that God has freely given us also includes the blessing of adoption. When we were saved, when we were justified, God adopted us as His sons. God became our Heavenly Father. We were given access to God in prayer. Now understand that that we do not have access to God in prayer simply because we've been created by God. Because remember, sin alienates us from God. And so that the man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9, who had been born blind, said in verse John 9.31, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. There is no assurance that God will listen to your prayers, that He will answer your prayers, if, if you are not saved. Because you are separated from God by your sin. You have no fellowship with God because your, your sin has created a divide between you and God. But when God saves you, He adopts you as His Son. He becomes to you your Heavenly Father. You have access now to God in prayer. Think of how that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died. Showing the access that Christ accomplished for us to God. And these blessings, they they go on and on in the New Testament. I have not exhausted by any means these things that God has freely given us. We read in Ephesians 1 earlier that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we read of some of those blessings in Ephesians chapter 1. These are the things that Paul has in mind here when he says in verse 12, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Our text says that we've received the Spirit that we might understand these things. Part of the purpose of revealing divine truth is that the recipients of that divine truth would understand the truth, that they would know the truth. We read, we have received the Spirit that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
And the apostle proceeds to tell us in verse 13 something of the process by which God has revealed the truth. Look at verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Note the word this, and we impart this. That word this refers back to the things uh, freely given us by God, the, the blessings of salvation. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Paul here in verse 13 is saying how he and the other apostles and New Testament prophets communicated God's revelation as God's mouthpiece. He says, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. In, in words. The revelation that the Holy Spirit gave through the apostles was a verbal revelation. Whether the Holy Spirit spoke through the apostles when they proclaimed God's word out loud, like you see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up and he proclaims the word of the Lord. Whether the, the apostles uh, proclaimed God's word out loud or they were writing the New Testament, the Holy Spirit spoke through them. The Holy Spirit gave verbal revelation. Whether they were preaching, whether they were writing, the Holy Spirit gave verbal revelation through the apostles. God has not taken the truths of salvation and mystically placed them into our minds. Rather, He spoke verbally through the apostles and guided the apostles in writing His words. Paul says these words were not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. The apostles were controlled by the Spirit in the choice of their words. He says, we speak these things in words taught by the Spirit. They were controlled by the Spirit in the choice of their words. Now, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit dictated to the apostles what they were to say and write. As we read the writings of the apostles, we see that each apostle and New Testament prophet had a unique style in which they spoke and wrote. When you read 1 John, it reads very different as far as its style than the book of Romans. John had a very different style than Paul had. They did not take dictation from the Holy Spirit. What it does mean is that the Holy Spirit utilized the unique styles of the human authors and that the Holy Spirit taught them what they were to say, what they were to write, in such a way that every word was intended by the Holy Spirit. He used their style. He used their personality. And He superintended this so that everything that was written was exactly what He wanted written. They spoke in words that were taught by the Spirit. The result was words which did not come from human wisdom, but came from the mouth of the Holy Spirit. Whether the apostles were, were preaching, or they were writing Scripture, what was proclaimed was the very word of the Holy Spirit, the very word of God. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture where we see that the very words of Scripture were determined by God and are His Word. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy says, every word is important. Every word comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man lives by every word. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus spoke about the Scriptures, saying, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Old Testament law was written in Hebrew originally. And in Hebrew, there are little tiny marks that Jesus refers to as an iota and a dot. Very small marks that, that distinguish certain letters from other letters. These letters look very close. They're almost the same, but they have a dot or an iota that makes them a different letter. And Jesus says, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The, 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 the smallest of details in Scripture, even the choice of the letter, it will not pass from the law until it is accomplished. All of Scripture is divinely authoritative. Down to the level of the words and the letters. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read all Scripture is breathed out by God. Not just the, the red letters where Jesus spoke. Not, not just the sections of the Bible that speak about salvation. Not just the parts of the Bible that speak about how we are to live. But all Scripture, the historical narratives. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is the Word of God. Now Paul elaborates upon what he's been saying. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now that last part is hard to translate. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It is hard to translate because in the original language, which was Greek, Paul only used three words. The ESV uses eight words. Paul used three words. Literally, what Paul writes here is interpreting, or it could mean explaining, interpreting spiritual things to or with spiritual things. Interpreting spiritual things to spiritual things or interpreting spiritual things with spiritual things. So you have to look at the context to understand what he is talking about. And hence, translations do vary. The New American Standard translates combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Christian Standard Bible explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The New King James, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. NIV, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. And again, what we have in the ESV before us is interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. After I've, I've studied the issues here, I believe the NIV is correct. 
explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. I, I do not believe that Paul is talking about communicating to those who are spiritual. But he's, he is talking about communicating with spiritual words. Because the first half of uh, this verse is about communicating in words taught by the Spirit. What is Paul saying in the second half of verse 13? Well, he is elaborating on what he said in the first half of verse 13. In the first half, he said that he and the other apostles speak of the things freely given us by God in words taught by the Spirit. And now in the second half, he says that they explain these spiritual truths using spiritual words. What are spiritual words? Spiritual words are words taught by the Holy Spirit. As the apostles spoke... And spiritual truth, what are spiritual truths? Spiritual truths are thought, the thoughts of the Spirit. As the apostles spoke from God and wrote Scripture, they were explaining the thoughts of the Holy Spirit using words taught to them by the Holy Spirit. That's how I understand the meaning of this verse. Now verse 10 said that God has revealed these things of salvation to us through the Spirit. Now in verse 13, we see how God revealed these things to us through the Spirit. The message came from the mind of God. God gave the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom Christ had chosen. And the Holy Spirit, who knows the mind of God, gave the apostles the divine message, teaching the apostles the words to use in communicating that message. The apostles communicated that message using the words that the Holy Spirit taught them. This means that we should recognize every word in the New Testament to be authoritative and trustworthy, just as we do with the Old Testament. Now, to be more precise, this means we should recognize, we should recognize this about every word in the original manuscripts. God did not make a guarantee that copies would be copied accurately. He didn't make a guarantee that translations would be done correctly. So what's being said here should be recognized about every word in the original manuscripts of Scripture. However, English Bibles like the ESV, like the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible, are very faithful word-for-word translations and reflect a very accurate understanding of what the original manuscript said. As far as this is the case, we can view our English translations to be the authoritative, trustworthy Word of God. Now, many English translations do not seek to be word-for-word -word translations, but rather they seek to be thought-for-thought, thought-by-thought uh, translations. Uh, Examples would include the NIV and the New Living Translation. Such translations that are not seeking to be word for word, but rather thought for thought, are certainly valuable and they have a place. However, if you are doing careful Bible study, as opposed to devotional reading, it is good to use several translations, including a word for word translation, since the very words of Scripture were given by the Holy Spirit. 
Now if all God did was communicate His Word through the, the mouth and the, the pen of the apostles, would that be sufficient for people to know and understand His Word? Uh, think about the Corinthians who heard Paul's preaching. Paul spoke to the Corinthians using words taught by the Spirit, explaining to them the thoughts of the Holy Spirit, using the words that, was, that were taught to Paul by the Spirit. Was that sufficient for the Corinthians to know and understand God's Word? The answer is no, as becomes clear in the second half of our text. In the second half of our text, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. His ministry of illumination. In, the sec in, the, in this section that we're going to look at now, the Apostle contrasts what he calls the natural person with what he calls the spiritual person. The spiritual person is the person who has received the Holy Spirit. While the natural person is the person who does not have the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to look in verse 14 at what Paul says about the natural person, the person who does not have the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The, the natural person is the person that has only had a natural birth and not a supernatural birth. The natural person has not been born again, has not been born of the Spirit of God. He has not been regenerated. He has not been renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is a natural man. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, answering Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God is sovereign in the new birth. The new birth is not brought about by the will of man. One must be born again. One must be born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the natural person has not been born of the Spirit. And, and consequently, the natural person is under the influence of his fallen human nature, not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In context, the things of the Spirit of God are the things that the Holy Spirit has revealed through Christ's apostles. The natural person does not accept these things that are revealed by God through the Spirit. We have seen that the heart of these things that God has revealed through the Spirit is Christ crucified. 
These, these things that are revealed, these things of the Spirit of God, are the things that concern God and righteousness and sin and guilt and Christ and redemption and salvation and repentance and faith and eternal life. And the natural person we read here does not accept these things. Even though the Holy Spirit has so clearly revealed these things through the apostles and in the Bible, the natural person rejects these things. He does not recognize the truth, the authority, the excellence of the things of of the Spirit. He does not believe them. He does not appreciate them. He does not obey them. Paul says, for they are folly to him. The things that God has revealed through the Spirit are folly to the natural man. Remember what we read in chapter 1 verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The things of the Spirit are contrary to the heart commitments of the natural person. The natural person is committed to to self. The natural person is committed to his own autonomy. He is committed to determining for himself what is good and evil. Which is exactly what Satan tempted Eve to seek to do. So to the natural person, the things of the Spirit are foolishness. Paul goes on, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually examined, is the Legacy Standard Bible translation. That these things can only be correctly examined and appraised with the aid of the Spirit. These things can only be correctly appraised and examined by means of the Spirit. That's the idea here. These things are spiritually discerned. And so the natural person is not able to understand them. They don't have the Spirit. And they can only be discerned, examined, appraised rightly, spiritually, by the Spirit. When one receives the Holy Spirit and is born of Him, the Holy Spirit shines light into our formerly darkened hearts. I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light light shine out of darkness, that was in Genesis 1, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry of reconciliation. Shining the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. 
Ephesians 4.18 teaches that fallen man is darkened in his understanding and has a hard heart. That was your condition before being saved. That was my condition before being saved. We were darkened in our understanding. We couldn't understand the things of the Spirit of God because we were in spiritual darkness. That was the effect of sin upon our soul. But the Holy Spirit gives a new heart and He turns on the lights, so to speak. Ezekiel 36 promised, I will remove from you the heart of your heart of stone, and I will put in you a heart of flesh, and I will give you my spirit. The Spirit of God takes out that heart of stone, He replaces it with a heart of flesh, and He comes in and He shines His light into our heart. So we we go from being in spiritual darkness, our, our minds being darkened, our hearts being darkened, we go from that to light. The Holy Spirit shines His light into our heart so that we can correctly understand the things of the Spirit. We can correctly understand the things that have been freely given us by God. We can correctly understand the Word that God has revealed through the Spirit. We can understand the things of salvation because the Holy Spirit has turned the lights on. When you are in darkness, you cannot see and appreciate the things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit are spiritual diamonds. They're spiritual jewels. But you cannot rightly appraise their value in your fallen, unregenerate condition. Lacking the Spirit. When you are in darkness, you are not able to understand them. Now, it is not simply a matter of the natural person not seeking to understand the things of the Spirit. Notice what the text says in verse 14. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's not able. There's inability. The difficulty we see here is with man's whole inward state. The effect of sin on the human soul is to make the soul blind to the truth. Blind to the, the excellence and the beauty of divine things. Man's inward state must be changed by the Spirit of God before he can apprehend the truth and the excellence of the biblical gospel of Christ. So this verse that we're looking at tells us why unbelievers reject the gospel message that we share with them. It's not that we do not explain the gospel message well to them. It is that they do not have the Spirit of God to illumine their minds. Now sometimes we don't explain the gospel well. And we need to grow so that we do explain it well. But ultimately, the reason why the unbeliever does not receive and believe and respond favorably to the gospel of grace is they do not have the Spirit of God to illumine their minds. They have no ability to understand and appreciate the gospel of a crucified Savior. We might as well be speaking a foreign language. But the glory of the gospel is what we saw back in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Look back in 1 Corinthians at chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, keeping in mind that the natural man cannot 
understand the things of the Spirit. Natural man rejects them as foolishness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What we see here is that God in His great mercy and grace is sovereignly calling men, women, boys, and girls, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, to Christ for salvation. God is calling sinners, individual, particular sinners, to Himself for salvation. And when those whom God is calling hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit turns on the lights. And consequently, Paul can speak of the spiritual person in our text. Look in chapter 2 at verse 15. The spiritual person, in contrast to the natural one, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Notice that Paul speaks about the spiritual person in contrast to the natural person. Now, the word, the, I'm sorry, the world uses this word, word spiritual very differently than the Bible is using it. Many people today who do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior call themselves spiritual. Maybe they'll say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Many people will call themselves spiritual. And they may simply mean by that that they believe in and they pray to a higher being. Or they believe in a spiritual dimension. But in the Bible... The spiritual person is the person who has received the Holy Spirit. They're called spiritual because they have the Spirit of God. Now, when does a person receive the Holy Spirit? Some churches wrongly teach that the Holy Spirit is received at some point after a person is saved. And those churches that teach this commonly base this teaching on narratives in the book of Acts such as the conversion of the Samaritans. Do you see that Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans? They believed the gospel, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles came from Jerusalem um, and saw that they had believed the gospel and I think laid their hands on them and then the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. So some churches will point to passages like that in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit was not received Uh, when one first believed, but subsequently, they'll look at that and say, look at, look at this. A a person who, who is saved needs to subsequently receive the Holy Spirit. But such churches who teach this, on the basis of these narratives in Acts, fail to recognize that these narratives are not teaching what would be normative, but they are describing how the church began. It was important for the apostles to recognize that the gospel had now come to the Samaritans. Could that be repeated? No. 
You can't have an initial coming of the gospel to be repeated. It, it, the significance was it was the initial coming of the gospel to the Samaritans. It was a significant point in redemptive history. It could not be repeated. Acts is simply describing what happened and how the church started. It's not telling us this is going to be normative from now on. What does the Bible actually teach about when a person receives the Holy Spirit? Turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, which we read earlier in the service. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this for yourself. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And the Apostle Paul did not know everyone, everyone who was in the church at Ephesus when he wrote this. He's writing this because he's not with them. He says, You in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed. This is the teaching of the apostles on when a person receives the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit when they first believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not some point subsequent to that. Now, coming back to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Here in our text, Paul speaks of the spiritual person. In speaking of the spiritual person, he is speaking of all believers. He's speaking of all the regenerates. And he says, the spiritual person judges all things. Now, this word judges is translated from the same word that was translated discerned back in verse 14. Back in verse 14, remember what it said there? Uh, The natural person is not able to understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. That word discerned is now used in verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things. Same word in the original. The New American Standard translates it a little differently here in verse 15. The spiritual person discerns all things. Well, the New American Standard 1995, the spiritual person appraises all things. Or the Legacy Standard Bible, the spiritual person examines all things. What you see here in verse 15 is that what the natural person was said to be unable to do the spiritual person does. The spiritual person judges or discerns or appraises or examines all things. Well, what is, what is all things? All things are those things that were called in verse 14 the things of the Spirit of God. 
That the person who has the Spirit rightly discerns the things revealed by the Spirit to be the Word of God. And this person discerns the truth, the authority, the excellence, the beauty of the Word of God. Rather than rejecting the Word of God as the natural person does it, the spiritual person accepts it. This is because the Holy Spirit is in him, has made him new, and illumines his mind. The Apostle continues in verse 15, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. In the ESV, you'll notice those words, to be, is himself to be judged by no one. Those words to be are not in the original language. And no other translation I consulted used these words. After studying it, I think it is better to follow the other translations and leave them out. But is himself judged by no one. Again, the word translated here, judged, is translated by the New American Standard 2020 edition as discerned. The New American Standard 1995 edition, appraised, Legacy Standard Bible, examined. But he himself is discerned or appraised or examined by no one. What does this mean? It means the spiritual person is not discerned rightly by any natural person. It is just as impossible for the world to understand faithful Christians as it is for the world to understand the things of the spirits. To the natural man, a Christian is an enigma, if not an offense. To many natural men, the gospel is either an enigma or an offense. And they view Christians the same way. Christians to the natural man are either an enigma or an offense. When you are born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God gives you new desires. The Spirit gives you new values, new affections, a new mindset. Ephesians 2 says that before we were saved, we were following the course of this world as we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were hardened in heart. We were following the devil. 1 John says we were in the embrace of the, the devil. But when you're born in the Spirit, you're given new desires, new values, new affections, a new mindset. And, and these are contrary to those of the natural person. Unbelievers, being darkened in their understanding, cannot understand why you believe what you now believe as a Christian. Unbelievers, darkened in their understanding, cannot understand why you think the way that you now think as a follower of Christ. They cannot understand why you live the way that you now live as a follower of Christ. The way that Paul puts it in verse 15 is that the spiritual person judges all things but is himself judged by no one. And this is why the gospel often brings conflict into relationships that we had before being saved. We may have had a, a very congenial relationship uh, with our parents or with our spouse or with our children. We got along great because we all were following the course of this world. But now, God saves you. He gives you a new heart. You have new values, new beliefs. And as now you follow Christ, 
those family members or those friends who you were so united with before, they can't understand why you've changed. They, they can no longer understand why you think what you think, why you do what you do. And many times they don't like the change. That they want you to be to go back to how you were before. And so there can be conflict that enters into relationships when one is saved. Because you are no longer a natural person, now you are a spiritual person. You have the Spirit of God, you have a new nature. And your parents, your friends, your children, they don't understand. This is also why a believer's closest friends should be believers. It's important that your close friends would share with you what's most important to you. It's important that your close friends would understand why, why you believe what you believe and why you think what you think and why you do what you do and why you say what you say. It's important that your closest of friends not be natural people, but be spiritual people. And this is why the Bible prohibits believers from marrying unbelievers. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Our text indicates that the unbelieving spouse cannot rightly appraise or understand the believing spouse. And yet we are to be one flesh as husband and wife. God has a reason why He prohibits believers from marrying unbelievers. If you're a spiritual person, don't marry a natural person. They cannot understand the things that are most important to you. Now, if you are a believer and are presently married to an unbeliever, God's Word instructs you to be as faithful as possible to your unbelieving spouse. And says that in doing so, you may win them to Christ. It doesn't guarantee it, but it says it's possible. Believing wives are, are not to use our text to justify a lack of submission to unbelieving husbands. Believing wives are not to say, well, my husband can't understand me because he's not a believer. He can't understand me. He can't understand the instructions that I'm under as a follower of Christ and so I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm not going to submit to my unbelieving husband. Whereas you are not to use our text to justify a lack of submission to unbelieving husbands. First Peter says just the opposite. It says that through your submission to your unbelieving husband, through the respect that you show to your unbelieving husband, you may win him without a word. Don't use this text to justify a lack of submission to an unbelieving husband. Likewise, believing husbands are not to use our text to justify a lack of love for unbelieving wives. Believing husbands, you're not to say, well, my wife is an unbeliever. She, we, we have nothing of, of greatest importance in common. She can't understand me, so I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to let her live her life. No. Believing husbands 
the scriptures call upon you to love your wife as your own body, as your own flesh. To show Christ to your wife in how you unconditionally, graciously love her. How you count her physical needs to be your own physical needs. How you count all of her needs to be your own needs. We're not to use this text to to justify not following the clear instruction to us in Scripture, in marriage. However, if you are a believer and are not married, resolve never to marry an unbeliever. Not only would it be disobedient to the Word of God, it would be utterly foolish in light of our text to to choose when you have the Spirit of God to choose to marry someone who does not have the Spirit, who cannot rightly understand you, that would be foolish. Resolve this day, if you are not married, resolve this day that you will never, by the grace of God, marry an unbeliever. Now, do not misunderstand verse 15 to mean that a Christian can be so full of the Holy Spirit that he is free from falling into error. You can look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. And you can wrongly conclude from that that if you are so full of the Holy Spirit, you are free from falling into error. That's not what this teaches. Do not misunderstand verse 15 to mean that a Christian can be so full of the Holy Spirit that he is above receiving counsel from other believers. Do not misunderstand this verse to mean that the believer can be so full of the Holy Spirit that he is above being corrected or above being disciplined. Such an interpretation would fly in the face of so very many other passages. Like 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We will continue to struggle with sin all the way until we are with the Lord. And so, we're not above falling. We're not above being corrected. We're not above being disciplined by other believers. But verse 15 is teaching something very important. It's teaching that the person who has the Spirit rightly discerns the nature and the source of the things of the Spirit, that he accepts them for what they are, the Word of God, But that person's new nature and the work of God in him is not rightly discerned by those who lack the Spirit. The Apostle concludes these thoughts in verse 16, in which he quotes from the Old Testament. Look in our text at verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The first sentence in verse 16 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, where the prophet is speaking of God's incomparable greatness. Isaiah was clear that no one can stand in judgment on the mind of God. No one can stand in judgment on the thoughts of God. No one can stand in judgment on the purposes of God. And Paul quotes this from Isaiah in support of what Paul just said in the second half of verse 15, that the spiritual person who accepts the things of the Spirit is judged by no natural person. And Paul makes the striking statement after that quotation, but we have the mind of Christ. Now you can only understand this last line, we have the mind of Christ, 
if you first understand the deity of Christ. Verse 10a spoke of God the Father as the initiator of revelation. Verses 10b through 11 spoke of the thoughts of God the Father as the content of God's revelation through the Spirit. And now verse 16 says that the recipients of God's revelation through the Spirit now have the mind of Christ. This could only be the case if God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are one God. That we have the mind of Christ means that by the working of the Holy Spirit, we have received the revelation of Christ's mind. That His mind has been revealed to us through the apostles and in the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit has given us understanding. Further, that we have the mind of Christ means that our mindset as believers is being formed by the scriptures. In this way, our mind is being conformed to the mind of Christ. As our mind is conformed to the scriptures, our mind is conformed to the mind of Christ. The scriptures are a revelation of the mind of Christ. Now this is one of the reasons why we who have the Spirit study the Bible. That our mind would be conformed to the mind of Christ. Let me ask you, what fills your mind this morning? Is it the things that fill Christ's mind? Is it the Scriptures that fill your mind? Is it the glory of God and the things of salvation? Is it the wisdom of God? Or is your mind filled with the wisdom of this fallen world? Filled with the things of this fallen world? What is your mind stayed on? Oh, may our minds, having been illumined by the Spirit, be filled overflowing with the Scriptures, that we would think Christ's thoughts after Him. This is the, the, the design of divine revelation. God has revealed His mind, or it could be said the mind of Christ to us in the Scriptures, so that we will think God's thoughts after Him. We'll think Christ's thoughts after Him. We'll look at all things through the lens of this revelation that God has given to us. It's very possible to be more familiar with the Scriptures than most Christians, yet only be a natural man. Are you a natural man? Or have you received the Spirit of God? Don't think that just because you have the Scriptures, and you read the Scriptures, and you've memorized Scriptures, and you're familiar with what they say, don't assume you are a natural man. Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees who were very familiar with the Scriptures. They were the preeminent biblical scholars of the day. And Jesus said to one of them, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus warned the Pharisees and the scribes that while outwardly there was an appearance of righteousness, that inwardly uh, they were tombs filled with dead man's bones. There was no light in their hearts. They were spiritually dead. They had the scriptures, they studied the scriptures, they knew what the scriptures said. 
but they've never been born of the Spirit. The heart of stone had never been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And so let me ask you, are you a natural man or are you a spiritual man? Has the Spirit of God invaded your heart? Has the Spirit of God made you a new creation? If by God's grace you recognize this morning your spiritual blindness, then your only hope is in doing as the physically blind did in the days of Christ's earthly ministry. What did the physically blind do in the days of Jesus' ministry? They heard Jesus passing by. They said, Son of man, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Open my eyes that I might see. Give me the mercy of of, of giving me sight. If you recognize this morning that while you're familiar with this scripture, you, you really have no understanding of the gospel. You don't have an appreciation of the things of of Christ because you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Then cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to shine His light in your heart by the Spirit. Ask Him to open your eyes that are blind. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin to God. Forsake your sin and turn to Jesus Christ who died upon the cross for sinners and rose again on the third day in victory. Turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him as your Savior from sin, submitting your life and faith to Him as your Lord to follow Him the rest of your days. In John six thirty seven, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And in Romans ten thirteen. We read, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will know that God has shown His light into your heart. You will know that you are a new creation. You will know your sins to be forgiven. You will know yourself to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know yourself to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know yourself to be the recipient of the gift of eternal life. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Now children, understand that it is not enough for your parents to have the Holy Spirit. It's certainly a wonderful privilege to be raised in the home of Christian parents. To be raised by those who have the Spirit and can understand the things of the Spirit and can teach them to you. But it's not enough to have parents who have the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God. And so what I'm saying to you, what I'm saying right now applies just as much to you as children as it does to anybody else in this room. You too need to repent of your sin. You too need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be saved. For if you are not born again, you will not be able to discern the things of the Spirit. And you will have no place in the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, we need to regularly pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Just as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119 verse 18. Open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. When we were saved, God shone his light through the Holy Spirit into our darkened hearts, giving us understanding of the gospel, giving us understanding of the things that, that God prepared for us, giving us understanding of the things freely given us by God. And yet, in the Christian life, we need to continue to ask as we open up the scriptures, O oh Lord, open my eyes that I may discern wonderful things in your law. We're utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to, to give us understanding of the revelation that God has given to us in the Scriptures. May, may we never listen to a sermon. May we never read a passage of Scripture without first praying, O oh Lord, give me understanding of what You have spoken. Enable me to understand the meaning, the significance, the application to my life, and give me the grace to respond to Your Word in repentance, in faith, in obedience, in worship. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have seen so much. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son who paid the price at Calvary to save sinners like us. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit Thank you that you revealed the things of salvation, the things of Christ through the apostles as your Spirit taught them the very words that they wrote. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come in to indwell those whom you are calling to yourself. You come in to, to regenerate, to make new to indwell and to illumine our minds, to give us understanding of the things freely given us by you. Oh Lord, may we use what we have learned today, and we be affected by what we've learned today. And Lord, may we share the truth with others. Christ crucified. The things of salvation that others, by your grace, by your Spirit, would hear, would understand, would believe, and likewise would be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.